The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It's 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stock futures popping as some Russian forces are reportedly backing off their positions on the Ukrainian border. This ahead of a key face-to-face this hour between German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Russia's Vladimir Putin. Uncertainty over Ukraine keeping the pressure on the global energy markets, however, after surging to seven-year highs, crude falling more than $2 this morning. And they don't call him the oracle for nothing. The big buy from Team Buffett that's expected to pay off in a very big way. Shoring up supplies, Intel inking a $5 billion deal of its own that's sending shares of one rival soaring. And why federal regulators are taking a closer look at Wall Street's biggest banks and what they see as some questionable trading practices. It's Tuesday, February 15th, 2022, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Courtney Reagan in this morning for Brian Sullivan. Thank you for joining us from wherever you may be watching in the world. Kicking off this Tuesday morning with U.S. stock futures actually surging here. You can see the Dow Jones Industrial Average higher by 352 points here in the early going. S&P 500 indicated higher by about 60 points and the Nasdaq higher by 273 points. And this all comes as the Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq and the Russell all look to avoid a fourth straight day of losses. Now, outside of stocks, investor attention remains focused on energy, with crude falling some 2% after hitting its highest level in seven years. You can see here we're down more than about 3% below $93 a barrel for WTI. Now, as gasoline or as crude bubbles up, I should say, so does gasoline. So RBOB hitting its highest level since 2014. And this, as AAA says, the national average for a gallon of gas is up nearly $1 from a year ago. Right now, sitting at $3.49 for a gallon of regular. You can see the RBOB futures contract at 2.7076. Let's take a look at treasuries. Of course, this one is a market that we're all watching very closely as the yield curve starts to flatten. And we look at movement on the short end, in particular, the two-year note at 1.575% this morning. The 10-year is holding above that key 2% level. The five-year note is just above, or just below, I should say, that 2% level at 1.93%. Let's take a look at what's going on in cryptocurrencies this morning. Also a very volatile trade this morning, this time to the upside for this market. You've got Bitcoin higher by 4% at 44,052. And you've got Ether at up 7% just above 3,000 at 3,094. Let's take a look at around the world. Trading just getting underway in Europe. Rosanna Lockwood is in our London newsroom with the early action. Rosanna. 
Yeah, Courtney, good morning. It's been a real turn up for the books here in Europe this morning. The broad stock 600 started the session here on Tuesday somewhere languishing around the flat line. Then it quickly turned on those Russian government reports that troops, a proportion of them might be returning to their bases. Again, Russian government cited source there, but it was enough of the markets to really turn around. The stock to Europe 600 around a percent higher. It's been holding on to that for the last hour and a half or so. A lot of green-based positivity across the board. In fact, let's take a look at the sectors as well. And of course, it's not just about Ukraine. It's about rates as well. We'll come back to that. But when you're thinking about the Ukraine crisis, of course, travel is widely affected. We're looking at travel and leisure up around a percent higher on this news that airlines might feel a bit more comfortable about navigation around Europe potentially as well. Oil and gas, as Courtney already mentioned. Now, we're seeing it somewhere on the flat line for those companies because we have seen a decline in oil prices this morning. But European yields is the other story we're focusing keenly on as we see risk on towards the equities markets. We saw yields really sell off on Monday. We've seen them creeping back up in the session this morning. Now, the 10-year bund at one point was at 0.3030. It's now 0.2820 on the longer-dated Italian bond as well. Keep an eye on that one. We've seen some interesting moves throughout the session. But, of course, fixed income and equities, they're also pricing in those comments that we had from Bullard yesterday on speaking to your colleagues over in the U.S. about this 100 bits move by June. So, really, when we take into account what's happened here this morning, it's been a sudden turn up the books. We're seeing that positivity spread across to you guys as well. Thank you very much, Rosanna. There is a lot of movement in early going. We're going to get all to that this hour. We're going to move to this morning's top story on the ongoing developments on the Ukraine-Russia border. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is in Moscow today, and at this hour, he is meeting with Vladimir Putin in what's seen as the West's latest effort to explore diplomatic avenues to try to ease tensions. This morning's meeting comes after reports from IFAX that some Russian troops are moving off the Ukrainian border and returning to, quote, deployment-based following training exercises. This, as Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, raised expectations yesterday that the standoff might be resolved peacefully, saying Moscow is preparing to keep talking and that there could still be a, quote, way forward in negotiations. Joining me now is Financial Times Moscow, Moscow Bureau Chief Max Seddon. Max, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us here today. I, I guess the first question needs to be for all of us to understand, what are deployment bases? Well, this is a barracks, I think, is, is what we would call it. Basically, what Russia's defense ministry announced today is some troops from uh, two military districts that are near Ukraine are going to go back back to base. It's too early to tell what this means because twice in December and uh, last spring, during during these uh, uh, buildups that have, that have happened, Russia announced that they were withdrawing troops and actually a lot of the equipment just, just stayed at the border. But it certainly is uh, being interpreted by markets as a positive sign. And Russia is is using this to try to spin the American warnings of uh, plans to attack Ukraine as baseless. The Russian foreign ministry spokesman said, uh, spokeswoman said after uh, the defense ministry started uh, publishing these videos of tanks driving driving back to base, that this uh, would, would be a day of uh, the, the day that, that the Western war propaganda failed. And uh, the Kremlin uh, said just now that any allegations that they were planning to attack Ukraine is baseless hysteria. We don't know whether that's really going to be the case. We'll have to follow open source imagery and uh, satellite photos to see where all the troops and equipment go. But certainly that is the way that Russia's trying to spin it. That was exactly what I was going to ask you is sort of what sources should we be relying on to try to figure out 
what the truth is and what the facts are. If Russia is telling us one thing and the United States is telling us something different, at least based on the actions of the government, it seems like the United States is very concerned that something is going to happen. But to your point, markets perhaps are seeing this as a sign of relief. So where should we turn for information as this as this develops when you're talking about open source images? I, I, I still think we have to be very, very careful about how, how, we, how we judge any of this. There was uh, certainly a rush yesterday after Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of, uh, of Russia, said, said that there was, uh, they, they, he told Putin that there was uh, you know, more, more scope for diplomacy with these, with these tensions with, with the West. But the fact is that uh, having uh, the, these kind of rolling deployments on, on the border and uh, the threat of war, which has uh, certainly spooked uh, the, the U.S. and its uh, European allies, has already been, been very successful for, for Putin. Uh, Olaf Scholz, Chancellor of Germany, is in, uh, is in Moscow today. This is the latest in uh, a, a series of uh, meetings and phone calls that Putin has had with, with Western leaders uh, to uh, try uh, from, from their part uh, to, to get Russia to, to de-escalate. And uh, if this is the beginning of a drawdown, which is still a big if, this uh, could be a way for both sides to spin it as, as a win. The Biden administration could say that, you know, we are, our warnings worked, we were able to get Russia to stand down, hmm. and Russia can say, no, this was complete hysteria, we were never going to attack. Hmm. Wow. Very interesting. Uh, these developments certainly are worth watching and following carefully. Max Seddon, thank you very much for being here with us and for following it closely. You're doing fabulous work. We are showing some live pictures on your screen right now of Moscow and what is going on right there. You can see here the German chancellor uh, preparing to meet here with Vladimir Putin. This is what we are watching today. We hopefully will get some information about this meeting in a couple hours from now. Let's get to some of this morning's top stories with Christina Partsenevelis. She is here with those. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Courtney. Let's start with Intel, because Intel is buying Israeli chipmaker Tower Semiconductor for $5.4 billion, representing a 60% premium to yesterday's closing price. Tower makes chips and circuits used in everything from cars to consumer products to medical and industrial equipment. Federal investigators are reportedly launching a probe into block trading at hedge funds in some of Wall Street's biggest banks, including Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. According to The Wall Street Journal, the SEC and DOJ are investigating whether banks may have improperly tipped off hedge funds ahead of large share sales, possibly favoring key clients, some of which act as, quote, liquidity providers to Wall Street firms. And as part of its sweeping corporate overhaul, Peloton is laying off and bringing in new management in all parts of its operations, including supply chain. Though new CEO Barry McCarthy says he's not looking to sell the company. The executive shakeups are seen by some as a move to make Peloton more attractive to possible suitors. We know that what, they let off what 2,800 people and they all got one year free membership. But those instructors that we all love are still there. Interesting. These headlines just keep on coming, Christina, and shares are higher in the early going. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you later. When we come back, how Warren Buffett continues to earn his moniker, the Oracle of Omaha, and a perfectly timed buy by Berkshire Hathaway. Plus, why the U.S. and its allies are drawing up plans for a world without Russian oil. RBC's Halima Croft is here to weigh in. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, 
Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Let's check out the yield curve. The spread between the 10-year and the 2-year Treasury is at the tightest level since the start of the pandemic. Some analysts say bonds are caught between the fear of tighter policy from the Fed and other central banks and the geopolitical tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Let's get more perspective now from Ella Hoja. She's senior investment manager for global bonds at Picte Asset Management. Ella, thank you very much for joining us here. What is your read right now as we see this spread getting tighter and tighter on what the bond market and investors there are trying to balance? Right. Typically, when you see the curve flattening um, to those levels uh, in this trend and with this sort of speed that we've been seeing, particularly from late last year uh, and into this year, it's effectively telling you that policy is getting tight. The flattening argument is that eventually the central bank will have to give back some of those uh, hikes and therefore uh, tighten potentially too much for the economy to bear. And hence why uh, we're seeing uh, this type of trend in markets, which has probably been one of the more persistent trends uh, for several months now in fixed income. James Bullard uh, said on CNBC yesterday to our Steve Leisman that the Fed's credibility is on the line with the decisions that they're going to be making about monetary policy. Based on your expertise in fixed income, what do you believe the Fed needs to be doing? Well, the response from the Fed is the sort of response you would want to see when you have the kind of inflation prints that we've been having, right? So we're talking pretty elevated prints. I guess from a market's perspective, it's about the pace of that, uh, you know, hiking cycle that they are introducing. So on the one hand, the Fed's being very reactive to the inflation prints that we've gotten. On the other hand, as the curve, for example, the flattening uh, of the curve is telling you that could be potentially a little bit too much for uh, risky assets. So with that in mind, that's why we're seeing this uh, increased correlation between asset prices and why a lot of the riskier asset markets are reacting uh, negatively when we, tr- we see those uh, much higher yields on certain uh, trading sessions. Inflation has been so hot, hotter in many cases than was expected when we see the reads that come out monthly and certainly at the strongest pace since 1982. Is there anything that the Fed can do with monetary policy, with the tools that it has available to curtail this? Or is some of this just time and the supply chain and the shortages that we're seeing there alleviating through their sort of own systems of working their way through? 
Um, well, I think uh, you're absolutely right. In terms of the supply chains, it's very little the Fed can do. That's a dichotomy that economies will work through, as you correctly point out. Um, it can do a lot, though, in terms of confidence. So it's about the Fed's credibility in terms of targeting inflation. And therefore, um, you know, to that effect, the response we've had and the pricing of break-evens, uh, which tend to, to elude how much uh, inflation premium is in the market, have come off. And still, you know, the longer-term uh, vectors of those uh, break-evens are lower. So they're not telling you that the market's particularly worried about inflation, say, in three to five years' time. It's more the shorter-term uh, nature of it. So could you argue that potentially they are going pretty rapid uh, when we've potentially reached or are close to the peak in those numbers, it's, it's, it's possible, very difficult to say, but they do appear to be fairly nervous about the prospect of this uh, higher inflation prints feeding through into higher surveys, i.e. the sort of the average person in the street um, looking at a much higher uh, inflation conundrum further down the road. That's the risk of central banks, and that's why they're responding so hopefully. Ella Hoja, thank you very much for joining us here today, a discussion through the bond market and everything the market is trying to work out. Well, still on deck, burned by GameStop, one hedge fund's hope for redemption and the stocks it's buying to accomplish just that. Today's big number, $147 billion. That was the total trade between Russia and China last year, according to data from China's General Administration of Customs, a new record. That's up 36% over the previous year. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. We're getting news this week on what some of the investment world's biggest and most powerful hedge funds have been buying and selling. So let's start with Melvin Capital. It's perhaps now best known as the fund burned by GameStop when it bet against that company last year. And its latest filings gave Plotkin's hedge fund revealing it's betting big on reopening trades, increasing its stake in Live Nation by 64 percent to roughly $1.2 billion. That makes it the fund's biggest holding. Melvin also adding to its stakes in Hilton and Expedia. David Tepper adding new positions in General Motors and Nordstrom. The Appaloosa management funder, a founder also raised stakes in Macy's Energy Transfer and EQT. And a winning bet for Warren Buffett, whose Berkshire Hathaway bought about a billion dollars worth of Activision shares when the stock was down and before Microsoft announced plans to buy the gaming company. Pretty good timing by the Oracle of Omaha. Let's get a check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Stephen Romo is in New York with the latest. 
a lot going on. Courtney, good morning. With the Ambassador Bridge in Ontario reopened, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act to stop protests from truckers and others against the country's COVID restrictions. Trudeau ruled out using the military, but he did threaten protesters with plans to tow vehicles or even freeze their bank accounts. Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva is back on the ice after the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled she can still compete. Valieva tested positive for a banned substance before the Olympics. The court ruled she may skate because she's a minor or protected person, and the rules are therefore different for her than an adult athlete. But if Valieva does win a medal, the Games won't hold a medal ceremony. Well, he may be the CEO of Goldman Sachs, but David Sullivan unveiled some new talents at this year's Super Bowl. According to the New York Post, he DJed a party at Century Park in Los Angeles. Yes, that's right. He was a DJ. The Wall Street Titan played the Sports Illustrated party and it was attended by Jeff Bezos. His DJ name, by the way, Courtney, Diesel. Diesel. Yeah. Kind of funny. Yeah, it is funny. He has been known to uh, turn those tables. An interesting side hustle for the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Thank you very much. Well, straight ahead, the fate of the crooked crypto couple arrested last week on charges of conspiring to launder billions in stolen Bitcoin. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, you can check us out on Apple, Spotify or other podcast apps. We'll be right back. Call it a Tuesday turnaround. Stock futures surging as Wall Street looks to snap a three-session losing streak. This hour, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is in Moscow for a face-to-face with Russia's Vladimir Putin as the West hopes for a diplomatic solution to the rising tensions. Plus, flexing its pricing power as the maker of Jameson, Malibu and Kahlua and more see some big gains despite surging prices. It's February 15th, 2022, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. I am Courtney Reagan in this morning for Brian Sullivan. Let's get you a check at how stock futures are looking halfway through the 5 a.m. hour here in New York. And now checking on the Dow futures over the past six hours, but take a look where we are now to get us started. So we're up 280 points. However, take a look at this. So you can see right about here is where we got this news higher And this is where we're sitting just about off of those session highs when we got the news about the troops moving to deployment bases on the Ukraine-Russia border, which perhaps is a de-escalation of those rising tensions, though we aren't totally clear what's going on. Some mixed messages, depending on whose side you may be listening to. But nevertheless, the market moved higher. It does seem to be that there is some hope there. Pre-market gains Following Europe higher, you can see here across the board, we're higher in Europe. Italy higher by 1.2 percent. Germany higher by a little more than 1 percent, of course, as the German chancellor is meeting with Mos- with uh, in Moscow with Russia President Vladimir Putin. Also, take a look at treasuries. This market is one we're watching very closely as the yield curve begins to flatten. Take a look at the yield on the two-year note, 1.579. The five-year, 1.935. And the 10-year, holding above two, but gosh, Look how closely these are tracking here together. Something we need to continue to watch. And energy prices. We are seeing crude oil fall almost 3% below $93 a barrel here on this news of 
possible de-escalation of what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. But again, very early going. The intelligence is sort of still sort of figuring out what's going on. Different messaging from both sides. Still, markets are moving. Let's get a check on this morning's other top stories. Christina Partzanellis is back with us. Hi, Christina. Hello, Courtney. So let's talk about the accounting firm that's prepared former President Donald Trump's finances for years is now saying those documents, which have been used to secure lucrative loans and bolster Trump's image as a wealthy businessman, should, quote, no longer be relied upon. This after New York's attorney general said they regularly misstated the value of Mr. Trump's assets. In a letter to the Trump Organization, Mazars USA advised anyone who had access to those documents not to use them if assessing the financial health of the company and the former president. The company also says it is cutting ties with President, former President Trump. A judge ordering the pre-trial detention of uh, Lichtenstein, the husband and the crypto criminal couple accused of conspiring to launder more than $3 billion in stolen Bitcoin. At a hearing in federal court yesterday, Chief Judge Beryl Howell reversed in part a decision by another judge in New York last week to grant bond for the couple, saying, quote, their financial resources could be easily used to facilitate flight and could allow or could ha- all be used to evade. And Tesla CEO Elon Musk donated more than 5 million Tesla shares to charity in November. A filing with the SEC made public yesterday showed the donation, but not the recipient. The shares were transferred in batches between November 9th and November 29th, as Musk was also selling Tesla stock in preparation for a large tax bill. Drumroll. Every move that Elon Every Musk move. makes, we follow so closely. We do. We Taxes do. or otherwise. Thank you, Christina. Tweets, Parts and Evelis. Everything yeah. he says. Exactly. Yeah. You name it. His haircuts. Yeah. All of it. His bandanas. <laughs> Never mind. He's worn that before. <laughs> Thanks, Christina. Well, now to this morning's top story. And oil prices pulling back from seven-year highs amid news of possible easing tensions on the Ukrainian border with reports Russia is moving some troops back to, quote, deployment bases. But concerns of an invasion and global disruption of energy supplies continues to hang over the market. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin as we speak, with a Kremlin saying the two had, quote, a lot to discuss. He's expected to hammer home the message. The West is open to talks about Russia's security concerns, but will impose far-reaching sanctions if it attacks Ukraine. Let's bring in Halima Croft. She is global head of commodity strategy at RBC Capital Markets and a CNBC contributor. She's in Saudi Arabia at a conference hosted by the IEA, OPEC, and the International Energy Forum. Halima, you are a very busy woman these days. I guess I want to get your take, first of all, on this news we've got just a couple hours ago about what's going on on the border of Russia and Ukraine and the movement off of the deployment bases. Do you believe this is a de-escalation? The energy market is reading it as such. I think the key word is they're potentially moving some troops off the border. They are continuing to do military exercises in Belarus, in the Black Sea. So we really do not know at the moment whether this is a true de-escalation. I mean, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has indicated the Russians are willing to continue negotiations. But again, it does not look like their core demand about Ukraine never being in NATO is going to be met. So we just do not know yet if this is a true de-escalation. And of course, there's been a lot of discussion about what the United States could do if Russia does indeed invade Ukraine. However, oil or energy could be exempt from some of the sanctions. So what are we looking at as a potential disruption to the energy market 
when it comes to the United States and the sanctions against the country? I mean, you're absolutely right. U.S. officials have indicated that they are looking to exempt energy from their list of sanctions because they do not want to exacerbate an already precarious energy situation in Europe. But that said, if Russia, for example, is removed from the SWIFT payment system, if its major banks, Gazprom Bank, Spur Bank, BTB Bank, are blacklisted, there is a concern that Russia in turn will look to restrict energy supplies. And again, Russia is not just an energy producer. It's also a major producer of wheat, of critical minerals, metals. And so there's broad concern about what would happen in commodity markets if Russia chose to restrict supply. And so where do you believe the markets are pricing in the risk when you're talking about commodities? I understand some of the the LNG players are potentially those that are seeing the biggest hits right now. But across the board, as you mentioned, commodity markets are at play here. So what's being priced in and what's not quite yet? I mean, Courtney, these are very tight markets. I mean, just take the oil market. We are in a situation now where we have this global reopening. We have lockdown restrictions easing. And yet the supply picture remains very tight. I mean, OPEC has not been hitting its 400,000 barrel a day monthly increase. And so there are concerns about an overall tight market. And so the situation with Russia, Ukraine is exacerbating this situation. But the market is already fairly tight. So yes, oil will pull back to some extent if there's a true de-escalation. But again, we are not talking about an oversupplied market by any means. Isn't Russia happy that the price of oil is sitting at this level? I mean, this is certainly good for Russian finances, oil at this level. But again, I think the broader concern for the Russians is, you know, what type of sanctions would be imposed in the event of an invasion? I mean, the U.S. and Western allies are promising the most punitive sanctions that Russia has ever faced. And so they really would be facing potentially very severe sanctions on their financial institutions that would have a real impact on the ruble. So I do think that the Russians would be concerned to a certain extent about what would be coming from the West. We mentioned you are in Saudi Arabia right now. U.S. officials are there. What conversations do you think are being had right now with Saudi Arabia and their oil production in light of all of this? I think that I think there's a broader conversation going on with U.S. officials and senior Saudi officials about the U.S.-Saudi relationship. You've had a number of senior U.S. officials talking about the importance of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, talking about the U.S. commitment to helping Saudi Arabia deal with the ongoing threat from the Houthis. And we have the U.S. making requests for more barrels from Saudi Arabia to help sort of put prices in a lower level for U.S. consumers. And so the question is going to be, If we do get some type of military activity in Ukraine, who can really put barrels on this market to really try to tame prices? And before we let you go, what is the potential impact in Europe? As we know, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is meeting right now with Russia's Vladimir Putin. I mean, this is a huge concern for Europe and a huge concern for Germany. If you just look at Germany, 32 percent of their gas comes from Russia, 34 percent of their oil 50% of their coal. Germany is very tied economically to Russia. And so they have a very strong vested interest in de-escalation. Halima Croft, we're lucky to have you here with us this morning. Stay close as the situation develops. Thank you so much. You got it. Halima Croft. Well, now to Washington News and Science Capitol Hill is going after crypto in more ways than one. Elon Moy joins us with a CNBC analysis of which lawmakers traded crypto over the past year, what they bought and whether those bets are paying off. Elon, this is fascinating. Good morning, Courtney. Well, you're right. Congress is definitely taking a hard look at crypto 
as now a potential investment. Our analysis of financial disclosures found that eight lawmakers or their immediate family bought or sold cryptocurrency over the past year. The most popular by far, Bitcoin, with an estimated 229,000 in transactions, including through an ETF. Second was Ethereum with about 40,000. Congress even got into the meme coin Doge and Cardano. Both had estimated trades of $32,000. Now, these are estimates because lawmakers don't have to tell us specifically how much they invested, but they do have to report what they traded. And that included some of the lesser well-known cryptos as well, including Stellar, Celo, Chainlink, Basic Attention Token, even EOS, which had run afoul of the SEC a few years ago over its ICO. Now, the big question, of course, is how did they do? It's hard to say exactly from their disclosures, but take a look at GOP Representative Mark Green, the most active trader on our list. He bought Doge twice last April, once when it was around six cents and again when it hit about 12 cents. And then he sold a month later when Doge was trading more than three times that amount. So you can see he missed the peak there, but he also got out before the big slide. A Representative Green spokesperson told us that he uses a money manager and does not provide any direction on what to buy or sell. They said he follows all of the current rules governing trading and disclosures. But, Courtney, the debate in Washington right now is whether those rules need to change. Exactly. As you were just saying that with following the current rules and disclosures, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are talking about a ban on trading stocks. So would that apply to crypto as well? Courtney, it's actually really unclear. I've asked the lawmakers' offices about this specifically, and they don't even know. Most of the proposals are focused on trading individual stocks. One of them includes commodities as well. So this really comes back to that fundamental question of whether a cryptocurrency is a currency or whether it's more like a other financial asset. Are, does it matter what kind of cryptocurrency you're buying? Would there be a carve out for stable coins, even though we know both the administration and Congress want to have more defined parameters for how stable coins operate? So even though we do see this big push in Washington now to avoid any type of financial conflict of interest, that push does risk getting bogged down in these details of exactly how it would work. It would work. Alana, I know you did a pretty extensive analysis and you mentioned that there were eight lawmakers. Do do any of them that came up on that list have any discussions in their committees or otherwise about the regulation of cryptocurrency in general? Yeah, actually, two of the senators on the list, Pat Toomey and uh, Senator Cynthia Lummis, sit on the Senate Banking Committee, which today is holding a hearing on the potential regulation of stablecoins. Now, both of them are very uh, vocal and open about their ownership of crypto. Senator Toomey says it is a small part of his portfolio, but he believes in being uh, diversified and that lawmakers should you know, know something about what they're regulating here, what they're legislating about. Senator Cynthia Lummis has been one of the most vocal advocates for crypto on Capitol Hill. So you know, this isn't a situation necessarily where lawmakers are hiding their investments. Some of them are very open and public about uh, the trades that they've made and say that this is part of uh, lawmakers participating in the financial markets. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as they disclose it, which they have. Very, very fascinating. Elon Moy, thank you very much for that analysis. Well, coming up, the CEO of Pernod Ricard North America will join us live. She has a unique insight into everything from input costs and inflation to the labor market and the spirit of the consumer. Worldwide Exchange will be right back. 
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's bring you a few big money movers this morning. Shares of Artista Networks jumping the computer networking company, posting better than expected quarterly results and offering an upbeat forecast. Shares higher by almost 9%. Brookdale Senior Living shares are down this morning, however, following a mixed quarter for the retirement home operator. The stock is flat so far this year. And down about 4% here today. And watch shares of Intuit today. The maker of TurboTax software is cutting its revenue forecast, citing a slow start to the tax season. Shares are lower by more than 1%. Well, as consumers return to eating out, the outlook for the wine and spirits industry is becoming more and more positive. And despite inflation, consumer demand looks strong for the sector. And that could be good news for Pernod Ricard, maker of popular spirits like Malibu, Jameson, and more. Joining us now is Anne Mercogee. She is Pernod Ricard's U.S. CEO. And thank you so much for joining us here. Obviously, big, big discussion about input costs for almost every company across the board in every sector, your company not excluded. What's going on when it comes to inflation and how you're able to manage it through your portfolio? Well, first of all, great to be here. Thank you. And I will tell you, um, yes, input costs, um, like any industry, is hitting uh, the spirits industry. And, you know, it's giving us an opportunity to really think through the entire value chain and um, how we look at that from a pricing perspective. Um, and that inflation is really um, pushing some of us uh, to price some of our brands. But what's interesting is, um, despite the inflation, consumers actually have a little bit more discretionary income than what we've seen in the past. They've not been able to travel. Um, and so what we've seen in the spirits industry is a lot of premiumization. Consumers seeing the value of uh, buying uh, great value spirits. And so we're seeing a lot of resiliency in this category. You sell to commercial businesses, bars and restaurants, as well as to consumers through retailers, grocery stores, you know, you name it. So how is the pricing being passed along in those different segments? Again, you know, as we are a three tier system, our pricing is managed by our distributors and, um, you know, across all the various channels, um, we are seeing um, a lot of people reflect that price. Um, And so we're seeing consumers continue to you know, really enjoy different brands. Um, they're buying across the industry, across the segments, um, and they're willing to pay more. Um, and we're seeing that because a lot of people are still seeing a lot of in-home consumption. Um, all that growth that we saw in in-home consumption continues uh, to stay flat. So we, we're not giving any of that back. And as um, kind of restaurants and bars are opening up, we're seeing massive growth in that segment and it's, it's, it's raising all votes. Um, we're seeing growth across the entire industry. I see that you, uh, you for the second half, we're up 17% globally, 9% in the United States, but the United States is your biggest market. What does this tell you about the COVID recovery across the globe and what's going on by geography? Yeah, what I'll tell you is, um, first and foremost, um, I think a lot of people are, we're seeing premiumization across the globe. Um, everyone really wants to buy and our understanding that if I'm going to be at home, I can actually buy a, a little bit more expensive uh, bottle of spirits, spend on myself, but per glass, I'm actually spending less. And so people are beginning to understand what that looks like. People are beginning to understand how to make cocktails at home. So that trend is global um, and it's continuing to stay as we're coming out of COVID. Uh, we're seeing a, a great resurgence in Asia, uh, especially with our China and India markets. 
Europe has an extremely good rebound. And the United States is the largest market where we're seeing a lot of resilient growth. And we expect to see that even going into 2022. When you look at the demographics, you have an aging baby boomer population. And then, of course, you have millennials as well that are aging. Are you seeing a shift in what the different demographics are choosing to drink when they go for an alcoholic beverage? Are with the, with the rise of seltzers, what does that mean for your business? Yes, I'll tell you, um, when you look at the younger generation, they are looking to find entry points into the spirits industry. And we're seeing kind of the malt seltzer kind of slow down. And what's really picking up is spirit-based um, ready-to-drinks. It has lower ABV. Um, they're enjoying brands. We actually got brands on Malibu, uh, Pina Colada. We have uh, Absolute. Uh, we're coming out with a Jameson uh, ready-to-drink. So we're seeing younger consumers wanting to experience spirit brands, but in the ready-to-drink segment. We're also seeing a resurgence among um, younger urban uh, populations around things like cognac. So our Martel business is really, really taking off. And then across the board, we're seeing, you know, brands like Irish, the, the Irish whiskey. We're seeing uh, American whiskeys explode. Our Jameson business is up, you know, in, in uh, restaurants as it comes back almost 12%. So, you know, across all age segments, you're seeing different trends pick up and, you know, people who are older, they're making the, those cocktails at home. And so, you know, across every segment, you're seeing incredible uh, tailwinds that we're able to take advantage of. Very interesting. Anne Murkerji, thank you very much for joining us here today. CEO, president of uh, North American region for Pernod Ricard. Well, coming up, futures getting a pop early this morning on a report that some Russian troops are heading back to bases. We'll talk about how investors should be thinking about all these headlines flying around about the Ukraine crisis. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange or you just want to listen again, check us out on Apple, Spotify or other podcast apps. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Well, confusion surrounding Ukraine's near-term future has been causing lots of volatility. Futures moving higher in the last hour on a report that Russia is returning some troops to bases. You can see here the Dow Jones Industrial Average indicated higher by 340 points, NASDAQ higher by 263 points, and the S&P 500 higher by 58 points at this hour. Let's bring in Keith Lerner. He's co-chief investment officer at Truist Advisory Services. Keith, the market is reading this as a good thing, but many experts that we've been talking to here over the last hour aren't sure, worried perhaps some of this could be premature. If you're an investor waking up to these headlines, how do you think you should be reacting? Well, first, great to be back with you, Courtney. Uh, the first thing I will say is don't overreact to these headlines. We're in a very headline-driven market. But more importantly, when we look back historically at geopolitical events, crisis events, 
Historically, it does cause volatility. Sometimes you see a little bit of a, a short-term market dip. But when you look at six to 12 months later, markets tend to rebound, and it does not disrupt the underlying trend. So we would not, um, we would not sell into this. I think one positive right now that we're seeing, Courtney, is Sentiment has gotten very bearish, not only because what's happening with the Fed, but also the geopolitical size, which suggests um, a little bit of good news could go a long way for this market right now. What if it's the opposite? What if tensions do escalate? Do you think that investors should use history as a guide and note that there may be temporary dips, but that in the long run it won't impact our markets so much? Or is that impossible to say at this point? Well, if it does escalate, I would suspect there will be some downside for the overall markets. But the main question, as we look at the research, is does this cause a recession? And our work suggests that recession risk, even if this escalates, especially in the U.S., is relatively low. Also, um, I think one positive relative to history is Unlike 20 or 30 years ago, where we were big importers of energy, the U.S. is now also an exporter. So there's some benefit uh, to our to our companies. Um, when you think more globally, though, I think this does reinforce our longstanding U.S. overweight. When you think about overseas market, particularly in Europe, they're much more interconnected to the energy markets and Russia. So I think there's more downside in those markets, and we would remain underweight. And so while the uh, price of WTI is under pressure here this morning, down about 3% to under $93 a barrel or so, give or take, in general, that's well elevated. Those prices are much, much higher than we were just just recently. And I understand your overweight to energy, as some of these comments mm-hmm. suggest. Is that for the year? Is that beyond that? I mean, energy has either been a winner or a loser. There hasn't been a lot of in between. And right now it seems to be a winner. But how long can you stay with that trade? Well, we've been overweight energy for most of the past year. And even this year right now, it's up about 20 percent. So, you know, short term, we think it's it's due for a pause. I mean, the next best sector is only up 3 percent, which is staple. So it's up 20 percent. Some consolidation would be normal. However, an interesting stat, Courtney, is over the last three years, energy is still underperforming the overall market by about 60 percent. We think with a firming economy and still somewhat negative sentiment as far as low allocations to energy, we still think there's upside over the next year. But it will be you know, volatile, especially with the head- headline-driven market that we're in right now. Been a lot of discussion, speaking of headlines, over what the Fed may or may not do. James Bullard was on our air with Steve Leisman yesterday saying the Fed's got to be really careful here. Credibility is on the line. What do you think the Fed needs to do at least as far as it can, to keep inflation in check and with the next move that it makes on monetary policy? Yeah, well, we think they need to start moving forward, right? If we look historically, at the first rate hike historically, the average unemployment rate was 6%. Today, it's 4 The average un- uh, The average inflation level historically, when they first raised rates, was about 2.4%. Today, it's at seven. Now, that seven number is likely coming down. But the the big story is they need to start moving forward. From a market perspective, another thing that tends to inject volatility is short term. But as we studied uh, Fed rate hike cycles, historically, markets have moved up 11 out of the 12 cycles we studied um, because this tends to happen alongside an economy that is improving. That's why the Fed is raising rates. But they all, in our view, behind the curve and, and need to start moving with the rate hikes. Keith Lerner, thank you very much for joining us here this morning with your take ahead of the market open. That does do it for us here this morning on Worldwide Exchange. As the markets are trending higher after these latest headlines, you can see the Dow Jones Industrial Average higher by 335 points, NASDAQ higher by 268, and the S&P 500 up by 58 points. That does it for us on Worldwide Exchange this morning. 
Squawk Box is coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.